This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to 3RRR's Radiotherapy. Yes, it's that time of year, the madness that is November, December. End of year work parties, preparing to face the relatives, tying up all those loose ends. It's like a runaway train. Ah, but that's why you listen in to 3RRR's Radiotherapy, an oasis of calm and peace insulated from the end of year madness. Or so you thought. This Sunday, McZiff, he's going to explore the therapeutic relationship and what happens when it comes to an end. SK is in to do his usual stuff. Really, was Liam Neeson's character in the trilogy of Star Wars a pedophile? Oh, that's going to open up a whole can of worms. And me, the tallman, I'm going to chat about medical advance directives and the final goodbye. With the fabulous Kent on panel, what could possibly go wrong in the Shangri-La that is 3RRR's radiotherapy? SK, you, uh, you're looking fit, buffed and well. Well, I've, I've been away, tall man. I've, I've had some travelling in the last month, and the highlight of which was probably a trip to Barcelona to present at my first international conference on Alzheimer's disease, so I was a bit daunted. Yeah. Uh, but uh, uh, Platform presentation? Platform presentation, and had the distinction basically amongst three days of hearing about everybody else's failed trials, which is not unusual in Alzheimer's disease, mm. but I was actually able to present some positive data on one of the drugs that we're researching locally so that was uh, a bit of a career highlight for me in trial or a drug that's in phase one phase two phase it's in something called a phase 2a where they're looking at pharmacokinetics the way the body handles the drug and they've tacked on some efficacy measures as well i mean the study wasn't powered it didn't have enough participants to be able to demonstrate or to be hoping Mm. to demonstrate cognitive improvement but it did uh show some striking cognitive improvements after just five weeks of treatment Mm. uh, in a study that wasn't powered to show that improvement. I mean, we got uh, 1.1 standard deviations of improvement on some cognitive measures, which is really unheard of. So Mm. it's quite an exciting trial to be involved in. Mm. I mean, that whole area of neurodegenerative research... um yeah, there's ALS, there's all the uh, Parkinson's disease, there's amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, MND. They are an absolute elephant's graveyard for clinical trials over the last 20 years. Well, at the risk of boring our audience shitless, uh, this is perhaps <laughs> where this one Go drug ahead. can do something different. Uh, the, the company who developed this drug, uh, they started by asking the question, why is it that only old people get Alzheimer's disease? Why don't young people get it? Yeah. So they went down to the cellular level and had a look at the differences between healthy young cells and ageing cells. And they identified a particular receptor within the cell called the sigma-1 receptor, which when it's working normally in healthy young cells, plays a role in clearing abnormally folded proteins. And of all the diseases that you've mentioned, including Alzheimer's, where you've got uh, amyloid protein and tau protein, but Parkinson's disease has got misfolded proteins, ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis has got misfolded proteins, this receptor is targeting all of those diseases potentially miles upstream from where current approaches are. So uh, in, addition to have a cognitive, in addition to having a cognitive enhancing effect. So it's quite exciting for 
potentially many different diseases. Uh, the company who's running the trial just got a, a grant of three or four hundred thousand dollars from the Michael J. Fox Foundation in the mm-hmm. States to run trials in Parkinson's disease as well. So it's quite a, an exciting drug to be involved with. Because uh, uh, in terms of those neurodegenerative diseases, it is um, it it does strike me that the accumulation of proteins in the cell. The, the the basic pathway there is it's like a conveyor belt that takes all those uh, proteins that are uh, sort of redundant, transports them to a separate part of the cell where they're metabolised back into solution, as it were, and it's the breakdown of that conveyor belt that often leads to the these proteins uh, coming out of solution and forming clumps in the cells which eventually leads to the premature death of those cells. Yes, and that's the role of the sigma-1 receptor to try and clear these abnormal proteins. So, uh, Fascinating. Yeah. Now, what about in the world of psychiatry? Get on, how, how good are we? <laughs> Not that good, I <laughs> by the look on your face. <laughs> look, you know, that's all very good, but... Uh, What's it going to do about misery and uh, <laughs> bewilderment, desperation, yeah, yeah, despondency, yeah. uh, bleakness? Yeah, um, okay, I get it. <laughs> now, I mean, when we talk at that level, it, it is glib and it's, um, you are impressed by the fact that you could understand all of that and still not understand psychiatry. You, it's an, that is, that's a very interesting point. Um, I'm on a, a body where I do some examinations and assessments with... Uh, other specialists, medical specialists, and the level of ignorance amongst (laughs) some of our medical colleagues uh, in relation to what psychiatrists do and how psychiatrists go about and we ply our trade is quite remarkable. Mm. Um, Mm. And uh, certainly the responses from some of the orthopedic surgeons and (laughs) other surgeons who, when we co-examine, is uh, that they feel that they've learned more from the session than... uh, than we psychiatrists have. So, to be fair, Mixif, you know, psychiatrists are rightly criticised by our own medical colleagues about not knowing anything about the rest of medicine. So, to reverse that role and say that uh, our medical colleagues are remarkably ignorant about what we do, I the would, shoe can be on the other foot at times. I, I would dispute that. I, I, I think I think we know a little bit more than they know about what we do. Um, there's, there's that old trilogy of jokes. You know, how do you how do you hide a dollar from an orthopaedic surgeon? You put it in the history. (laughs) How do you hide a dollar from a plastic surgeon? You can't. (laughs) I mean, it just, you know, but uh, there is this perception. I mean, you know, orthopedics, gee, I've got some dear orthopedic friends, but gee whiz, if it's not nuts and bolts and angles, they don't know much. It's true, though, isn't it? There's, there's another joke about shooting ducks with a, a pathologist and a psychiatrist and an orthopaedic surgeon or something, and you know, a flock of birds flying by, and the people on the ground can't identify what, what birds they are, so the pathologist gets a gun and sort of shoots the bird and has a look at it to determine whether it's a duck or not, and I think the psychiatrist's was, was response, what does it think it is? <laughs> yeah, no, we could go on for hours, and that would bore our... Constituency, yeah. but it's that or sigma proteins, uh, yes. exactly. Yeah. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Let's move on to another topic. Yes, another topic entirely, and as the late great actor David Carradine was reputed to have said, uh, I'd like to take it up a notch and uh, <laughs> let the uh, the hate mail flow for this segment, which is really trying to deconstruct in a you know, not 
very serious way uh, the characterological flaws potentially of a beloved cinematic character that of Kijong or Kigon, Chigon, I'd never work, never work out how to pronounce that character's name. The Liam Neeson character. Chigon. In the first King. three Star Wars films. Thank you, tall man. Uh, there's actually some academic basis to this discussion, believe it or not. There was an article published in Australasian Psychiatry earlier this year which uh, took a whole lot of minor Star Wars characters and argued that they can be used as teaching tools for teaching about psychopathology uh, to medical students. C-3PO? C-3PO. There was one for C-3PO. Uh, he was supposedly alleged to have either an obsessive-compulsive personality <laughs> disorder yep. or, in fact, a dependent personality disorder. Or both. Yeah. Some of the, uh, the characterological... Uh, constructs that they put forward were really quite bizarre. They didn't go into detail in many of them, but, uh, for example, they characterised Chewbacca the Wookiee as having an orbitofrontal uh, lesion in his brain, <laughs> perhaps leading to disinhibited and impulsively aggressive behaviour. Mm. But they also uh, posited that uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi in his older years uh, might be a, a, a case study of major depression or something called pseudo-dementia, where your mm. cognition declines as, you, as, as mm. a result of being depressed. That, to me, seemed a very long bow. Yeah, so. But they did go into some depth trying to propose an argument that Qigong... Uh, the Liam Neeson character in the first three films, some of his behaviours would have been consistent with uh, grooming behaviour for pedophilia. So it's a difficult topic to get into without uh, trivialising it or potentially uh, offending people, but they do sort of make a case. And I'd like to go into some of the tenets of that case this morning and perhaps evidence them further by uh, reference to other literature which proposes that the adult Anakin Skywalker, you know, in the, yes. when he's late teenager, getting mm. into his 20s and becoming Darth Vader, actually went on to develop a borderline personality disorder. Yes. And, uh, you know, in the dynamics of abused children, a history of childhood sexual abuse is often prominent in those who go on to develop this particular type of uh, personality disorder in later life. Yeah. So if you accept the tenuous premise that Qigong was uh, a pedophile indulged in, indulging in grooming behaviour, then it's not beyond belief to imagine that that behaviour might result in adult psychopathology uh, as exhibited in the films by the young Anakin Skywalker. Right. Okay. So let's take a look at uh, what uh, Qigong does in uh, The Phantom Menace, for example. He uh, <laughs> exhibits a pattern, arguably, of taking uh, young, innocent, fair-complexioned boys and taking them under his wing. Yep. He targets uh, vulnerable children with no strong family ties. And you could argue that even the young Ben Kenobi in that film uh, was a, a, a previous conquest of Qigong's, if you like. When uh, Qigong meets the very young Anakin, who in the film is, is probably about seven or eight years old, I gather, he's, he's a vulnerable child who's out of place in his peer group. Uh, he's got limited parental supports. His only support is a single, uh, poorly educated mother who's in a very weak socioeconomic position. In fact, she's a slave in the film. And arguably, uh, his mother might see the involvement of an outside male influence as being both beneficial to her child and, and the child's development, having a, a male role model, and also a bit of a respite for herself from her sole role as being the, uh, the carer for this child. Uh, Anakin's mother herself has no 
particular power. She's, she's very vulnerable. She has no particular relations within the film to authority figures, which arguably might make her less likely to report any sort of abusive pattern of behaviour uh, to authority figures. Because she has no economic means and no power, that makes it very easy for Qigong to ingratiate himself uh, within the family structure uh, by offering a degree of emotional, financial or, or, or economic support. Once he's done that, you could argue that he uh, ingratiates himself with Anakin, developing a relationship with him, noting his many special features and abilities, marking him out as a special child, uh, giving such compliments to the child as, you know, you must have Jedi, Jedi reflexes if you're a pod racer because it's a very advanced thing to do. He fosters a relationship with the young child where secrets are kept, you know, saying to him at one point, the Queen does not need to know, let's keep this between ourselves. Through his relationship, he progressively further isolates the young Anakin from his peer group. Anakin's no longer playing with other children of his same age as he devotes increasing time to the, uh, the project upon which Qigong has engaged him, you know, that of developing the pod racer and uh, winning the race. After he's gained Anakin's trust in this way, you could argue that there's a gradual increase in physical intimacy in the relationship. And in the film, this is shown by, you know, Qigong drawing blood from the young Anakin to show the presence of midichlorians, you know, the elements of the force within his blood. Mm. You know, that could be a coda for an increasing intimacy in the, uh, the physical relationship. So a pedophile may also, and by way of their behaviour, incorporate other victims into the child's world. And, you know, at this point he's introduced to Ben Kenobi, uh, who's arguably a late teenager or early 20s person in the film. So he's drawing him into the circle of trust and he perhaps represents a previous conquest of, of Qigong's. So that's a fairly controversial position. I'd be particularly interested, McZiff, in hearing you rip into it. But with the, the lens of faith, can you see that this argument holds up as a uh, marker for potential grooming behaviour in adult-child relationships? So, so the, well, the question, it, it all gets back to whether or not the abuse takes place hmm. because there, one can have extraordinary close mentoring relationships between older males and young children, young males who've, who've had great difficulty... And there's not a hint of abuse there. It's what actually transpires. It is the, the, um, the perversion of a trusting relationship which then culminates in abuse. So I, I'm, I'm a, a wee bit concerned about attribution after the fact. Uh, and, and, and I think that's, that's where we need to go. How useful then do you think this whole concept of grooming behaviour is? Because, as you've just pointed out, the behaviours are identical between somebody who's grooming a child for uh, illegal purposes and people who are genuinely mentoring and befriending children and, and helping them out in that way. How is one to differentiate grooming behaviour and what then become the warning signs if uh, the warning signs are identical uh, in the absence of intent? Yeah, well, I think that's, you've, you've got to get into the head of the groomer. Mm. And that's that is part of the problem. <clears throat> uh, if you, wh when one, and, and I've had the um, the experience of, of uh, interviewing and assessing um, people who who have abused others, 
uh, and when they've been open enough about their uh, their behaviours, there is an overarching sense of process. They they know. They may be ambivalent about what they're doing. There may, in fact, be some guilt, but there is a there's a fundamental drive, which is profoundly different from the approach taken by someone who is genuinely interested in the welfare and development of a young person. So, when you are mentoring, you're not actually doing that for yourself. You may get some altruistic reward from that process, but if you're doing it for yourself then you're doing it for the wrong reasons. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, I think that is the critical thing. Now, how does one work that out? Uh, you know, you, you, you can meet narcissists uh, in the course of your life and they may appear incredibly charming and you may be drawn into their narcissistic whirlpool. Um, it's when, you be, when one becomes a victim of a narcissist or a psychopath. That's a whole different ballgame. Maybe part of the issue... Uh around you know reluctance of males to take roles such as primary school teachers nowadays for example is that because in the absence of knowing the intent of adult males taking on these mentoring roles for young children as grooming behaviors have become more well known to the wider community there's an assumption or a suspicion that taking on that role might indicate that your motives are are less than pure so perhaps it's a absolutely negative thing. Yeah, look uh, in my i suppose this is where the, this mentoring stuff really does come into it. And, I mean, you know, project from your own life, but um, coaching uh, football teams for kids playing football, um, you know, you again, you, you know, what you've just described there is that you're trying to affirm young children, you're trying to, boys and girls, trying to get them to do things that they didn't think they could do, uh, be part of a team, be part of a community, um, and all of those sort of things. And then, but when you were reading through that list of grooming behaviours, it's very, very close. It's mm. very close. Um, and uh, it, it's interesting because in order to do those coaching jobs, you have to go through a working with children's check, which basically um, looks at your past history and whether there's been any uh, charges against you. But that wouldn't necessarily protect the children because you could still have those thoughts and those feelings. But I agree, it does make you feel uneasy listening to you uh, go through that. And my role as a football coach, mm. I was thinking, oh, good God, this is, you know, this makes me feel very uneasy. Uh, you know, and, and sort of, you're right, you think, well, maybe, you know, it's just, I don't want to do that. Yeah. I don't want to be, you know, put myself in the position where that, where somebody would think that for one second about my motives and that and, and then what has happened is that the the pedophiles have whilst they've caused enormous damage to their victims they've done a terrible disservice to that mm. that ancient role mm. of mentoring. the well-intended yeah. well-intent the well-intentioned yeah. mentor yeah. Uh, which is tragic yeah and I guess the, the defining point is the delineation of boundaries and, yes. uh, and the crossing of them. I mean, we've mentioned in the film uh, the drawing of blood was coda, perhaps, for yeah. an increase in inappropriate physical intimacy with a young child. Yeah. I, I think that that's where the, that's where the, similes just, the similarities just disappear, and that's why I don't think it holds that he was a pedophile. Uh, okay, well, let's perhaps take a look at the uh, consequences for the adult or young adult Anakin Skywalker in uh, the, the subsequent films. 
Uh, it's been argued, and this case was first presented at the American Psychiatric Association conference in 2007 in San Diego, but a, a French psychiatrist put forward the proposal that Anakin in those films was suffering from uh, or, or exhibiting signs of borderline personality disorder, and he went through the diagnostic criteria for borderline personality disorder and built his case accordingly, quite <coughs> outside at the time of this thesis about uh, potential grooming behaviour having been introduced, because the article I've just been speaking about was from 2015, yeah. so that knowledge, if you like, wasn't there at the time. But some of Anakin's traits as a, as a young adult, he... Uh, alternately idealises and devalues authority figures. Patients with borderline personality disorder often indulge in what's called splitting. So within the same person, they can sometimes be 100% uh, good, at other times 100% bad, and there's no shades of grey in between. People with a, a borderline dynamic tend not to be able to see the shades of grey and the subtleties. It's either one thing or the other with nothing in between and when you look at the relationship between Anakin and Obi-Wan Kenobi as that plays out in the second and third films uh, there's times where he's clearly deferent and idealising Obi-Wan at other times he's in open rebellion against him so he's got that splitting dynamic with his mentor going on yeah People with borderline personality are also prone under times of extreme stress to undergo a process called dissociation and there's a couple of uh, scenes in the second and third films where Anakin appears to dissociate in times of extreme stress. The first of these relates to the death of his mother, uh, who's kidnapped by Tusken Raiders, and mm. he goes through the desert to try and rescue her, but he's too late, and she's dead, and he flies into a rage and kills the Tusken Raiders, and you see him in this sort of dissociative state afterwards. The second time is following the death of his wife. So when Padme dies following childbirth or in the process of childbirth. Again, that's a, a crisis for him, and he becomes highly emotional and dis dissociates and has trouble struggling to re-establish his identity. And it's following that you know, final loss of a, of a loved one that his break occurs and his identity splits and becomes that of Darth Vader, if you like, mm -hmm. and struggles with identity. Again, are a common issue for people with uh, borderline personality disorder. They don't know who they are or necessarily have a coherent sense of self. And changing one's identity in such a dramatic way from Anakin Skywalker to become Darth Vader is uh, you know, a particularly dramatic example of that, arguably. So, uh, so under stress, under stress without necessarily saying you've got a personality disorder but people can decompensate and they can either become introverted depressed under extreme stress but what you're suggesting is that, that this is more sort of an active acting out and a change of persona almost it's it doesn't have empathy in it it doesn't have understanding in it is that well, there's, there's other schools of thought and analysis of the Anakin Skywalker character that uh, portray him either as having narcissistic traits or antisocial traits. And you make a good point that under stress, in all of us, you know, things which aren't, aren't normally evident in our personality can come to the fore. Yeah. Uh, there's the person that we are and then there's the persona that we project. And... Uh, with borderline traits and narcissistic traits and antisocial traits, it's not an all-or-nothing thing. We all have components of these personality structures within ourselves. It's a question of the extent to which any one personality structure dominates that forms the sum whole of who we are. Yeah. But under stress, certainly aspects of our personality that aren't normally evident 
can come out. We've all done things when we're particularly angry or upset that we wouldn't have done when we're in a calmer state. Okay? Yep. Got it. Okay. Another element underlying the borderline dynamic is that people suffering from borderline personality will form intense attachments to other people and go to great lengths to try and avoid abandonment by the loved ones. And again, if you take those two examples of the loss of Anakin's mother and the loss of his wife, uh, you know, he goes through the desert and slaughters presumably dozens of Tuscan raiders to try and prevent the death of his mother. Yeah. Uh, goes to great lengths to avoid abandonment by her. And in the final, you know, 30 minutes of uh, the third film, he does the same thing with Padme. You know, yeah. he, it's almost like he's making a deal with the devil when... Uh, he talks to the Emperor about uh, turning to the dark side to learn how to lose avoiding people who are close to you and to yeah. bring people back from the dead. That's sort of like the dark Jedi bargain yeah. with the devil that he enters into. So arguably, uh, there's elements of personality types within Anakin Skywalker that might reflect this uh, childhood dynamic that uh, he's al- he allegedly underwent in the first film. Just to, to expand perhaps on this uh, idea of dissociation, you know, what is dissociation? It's, it's a temporary splitting off of one part of the consciousness from conscious awareness. And to give people an example that they might be able to relate to, I, th- I think all of us probably dissociate on a daily basis, tall man. And I'll give the, put this example to you. Have you ever had the experience where you're driving to work and you've got something on your mind and throughout the drive, you're just intensely preoccupied with what you're thinking about. And half an hour later, you arrive at work without really having much in the way of conscious memory about all of the yep. complex motor activities that you were doing to navigate and respond to traffic signals and be aware of, of traffic threats. That's a good daily example of dissociation, mm. splitting off one part of active life from conscious awareness while you focus on something else. Mm. Got it. Okay. Fascinating. I, I, I mean, uh, effectively, though, they would have written these, um, these, this trilogy of Star Wars not considering... Th- this is a projection backwards onto the series. And, and, I mean, it's a very good way to explain what a pedophile actually is, where, the way you put that. I mean, the, the grooming, the way, you know, they, they go for vulnerable children without authority figures or they're not well-connected. I mean, it is... It's, uh, it's a good sort of paradigm, as it were, to hang on to what a, what a pedophile actually does. It is a projection backwards, but, you know, there is evidence of a projection forwards, at least in the, the middle three of the trilogy. You know, it's well known that George Lucas employed the services of a Jungian analyst okay. to construct elements of the storyline. It's very much the archetypal okay. Jungian hero's journey. Yeah. You've got the foundling archetype who's a special child whose parents aren't really his parents. You've got the powerful old wizard yeah. archetype in Obi-Wan Kenobi and so forth, and it's a discovery of self. And Lucas did employ ah, through that medium that psychoanalytic concepts to make the story one of true resonance with our yeah. unconscious. Yeah, uh, no, it's deep, deep stuff. I always said Star Wars was more than uh, just swords and lasers. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Mcziff. Yeah. Um that was a fascinating discussion, mm. and uh, I'm going to go from the the 
the theoretical to the practical and talk a little bit about final sessions in psychotherapy. And uh, anyone who's been in therapy, particularly long-term therapy, and uh, all therapists know about the intense emotion that can be felt in that final session. And I had the experience this week of uh, farewelling my longest attending patient after close to 20 years of, uh, of, uh, of work together. Um, and uh, it was uh, quite a remarkable experience. And, uh, but with, I'm not going to reveal anything in particular about the, the specifics of the case, but talk a little bit about uh, what it's like on the other side uh, from the therapist's perspective. But to do that, we need to understand a little bit about, uh, about the whole process. When you work in psychotherapy, you have uh, unique access to the lives, the feelings, and the experiences of your, of your patients. Um, you're not a family member, you're not a friend, uh, and you're not a judge or jury, but you're a fellow traveler. And uh, you're another human being who has life experiences, who knows joy and sadness, triumph and tragedy, hope and despair. And um, with our patients, we go on a journey and hopefully one that ends in a, in a better place than where it starts. It's a journey, though, that has many undulations and it's the process of uh, walking and working through the undulations that, that uh, seals the therapeutic relationships. Now, for my patient, this particular patient, and for uh, so many other patients who've, uh, who've embarked on, on therapy, um, the last session can be an opportunity to recap what has been experienced over the therapeutic process, the highs and the lows, the things that are helpful, the things that aren't helpful. And uh, my this particular patient listed some of the funny things that she thought that I'd said over the years. She bravely told me about some of the idiosyncrasies that uh, had irritated her uh, no end. Um, and uh, um, uh, Isn't that a lot to cram into the final hour? Except, I mean, you've got 20 years of therapy the final hour cannot be used to unload all that. Surely you start winding you do, down at, at around the 15-year mark, you know, <laughs> in preparation. No, this is, this is the, I mean, this is, this is an extraordinary example, but, but, but often there are, there are things that can, uh, can only safely be said in that final <laughs> session. Um, uh, I do remember one particular patient many years ago who, um, who after relatively brief therapy, um, had uh, she th- she'd uh, done very well and she told me in the final session she said that when she was referred to me by her GP he said go and see this guy because he's actually quite a funny chap and uh, he'll help you see the lighter side of things and so she said in the the final session she said that's what the GP told me that you're a funny guy and I want to tell you as I'm leaving here now you're the most humorless bastard I've ever encountered (laughs) so and I took that as a that's a badge of honor well the, the attainment of insight as a goal in Absolutely, psychotherapy. Yes, <laughs> that's right. So, so, so I, I was able to be informed about some of my idiosyncrasies. And, well, and can I? What about when you you have this contract of this therapeutic relationship, and it is a relationship like no other, really, and you have to have quite strict boundaries in that relationship because. It, it leads both you and the patient into very vulnerable territory. What happens when you think that the therapy is not working and it's not, it's not achieving what you're trying to achieve? So you enter in good faith 
we're going to see each other twice a week uh, or once a week and we're going to work through all the sort of dynamics of your life and try and see if we can gain some insights into where this stuff comes from. And you get down that pathway substantially, but for you then you, you start to get an awareness, this cannot work, this is not going to work for this patient. Look, I think that's, a, that's an absolutely wonderful question and I think that the first thing is <coughs> that is to be able to have sufficient insight yourself to know that that is happening and to not think that you can be all things to all people. So to know that there might be someone who's better at this than you are for this particular person at this particular point in time and to be be robust enough to be able to say, look, I, I, I don't think this is working. I think that we need to look at other options and I'm happy to engage in that process with you and find an alternative. It's terribly important not to leave someone feeling as though they're dangling, as though they're abandoned, because a lot of people come to the therapeutic process with that and they don't want that to be repeated. And so it's important, I think, to take responsibility for the fact that at this point in time you may not be the best person to be helping your patient with those issues, but to ensure that they're engaged somewhere else with someone who's perhaps more suited to that. And say, for example... Like, I don't do cognitive behavior therapy. I don't do it. But there are people who, there are patients who, who I think are, are extremely well suited with a particular condition for that. And if that becomes apparent to me early on, then I will make that call very quickly and I will help find. I've got a series of people who I would then refer to. And I think most of us, you know, experienced therapists who, um, who are not using the therapeutic process as, as we were talking about before, I mean, it's the difference between being a groomer and being a mentor. I mean, if you're a mentor, you're doing this to help others and you may get some altruistic benefit from that process where you can feel, well, I'm pleased that I've helped someone else. And that's entirely different than being in there yeah. because, hey, you know, what a wonderful person am I because yes. I'm a good therapist. Is it ever too late, Mixif, to uh, make the call? Because this one example you've given this lady been in therapy for 20 years. If you reach the point six years in where you realise that this isn't actually working, is it difficult to have that discussion after such a protracted period? Look, I think, I mean, this was an an unusual duration and this reflected the complexity of the particular case. And I'm not talking about 20 years of psychoanalytic psychotherapy twice a week on the couch here. So yeah. it's, um, there, there are, there's, there's therapy and there's therapy, there's different sorts, there's different types and there's, there's, uh, um, and I, I don't, I don't want to go into the specific details, but one, I, I, I don't think it really matters where you are. I think you've got to work out whether, you know, what, what is best what is best for your particular patient? And I think that one always has to hold that in, at the forefront of one's mind. Can, can I ask, Mixif, I'm sorry if this puts you on the spot again, but what emotions did the process raise for yourself? Because you well, know, I'm, after 20 I'm, years... I'm actually going to... That's exactly where I'm heading. And, uh, and, and I, I want to contextualise it by saying that uh, most people who work in therapy 
have had their own therapy. And so there is that, there's that experience. So as I, um, as I sat during the recounting, I felt, uh, I felt a, a surge of many different emotions. I felt uh, happiness for my patient and pride at what we'd achieved together, sadness that our time together was, uh, was coming to an end, and also a powerful feeling of what a rare and unique privilege it is to be invited into the innermost sanctum of uh, of someone's life to be able to to have that connection and to feel as though you have genuinely been of help that is uh, that's that's a, a really special experience and the last session of many therapies that last session many patients over the years invariably that having had that experience with so many patients, it, it took me back to the experience that I had in that final session myself with uh, with a therapist who who I consulted and and, uh, and many years ago I might add, and I remember the build up. I'd known for some time. Um, we'd agreed as to when the final session would be. Uh, the approach was torture. I remember that. I was highly anxious, perhaps more anxious then than at any stage because I wasn't clinically unwell it was I'd actually entered into the therapy because I knew that that was what I was going to be doing um, and and most young psychiatry trainees who were thinking of working in psychotherapy undertook their own psychotherapy and uh, um, I uh, I was so anxious as the ending was uh, was approaching after a number of years. I was thinking, you know, am I okay? Am I done? Have I really finished with this? Um, what if? How will I be? Can I come back? On and on. And uh, the, the, the session... And did you? The, the, no, I never... And, well, I didn't go back, no. Gee, I did. Yeah, well... It's only for two sessions, but I went back. There you go. And so the session came and there were these, there were reminiscences. There was high emotion, perhaps more emotion in that final session than at any time before. And the final farewell and then walking out that door for the, for the last time. And, uh, there was a mixture of relief and fear and excitement. It was all mixed up. It was a maelstrom of emotions and it's still very, very close to me. And, uh, it's said that the real therapy begins when the final session ends. I totally agree with this, that the, thera- the therapeutic process provides you with the tools. You don't change. Your personality remains the same. It's not like you go in there and have a part of you cut out that's diseased and or going to triple you. What you get is an understanding of who you actually are and where you w- work well and where you work badly. And then those tools... useful in your life absolutely and and so therapists hope that their patients will internalize a good message a little model of the therapist that they'll hold that in their minds and be able to use that in their day-to-day approach to life is is what you're describing akin to parenting you know we incorporate the values and views of our parents and it's almost like uh, you're an accessory superego to the patient after they finish therapy is that where you're headed precisely and uh and i when i look back on my own therapy I, i i think that i i have had that and and it's often said like you know what what happens when you bump into your therapist years down the track you know with the transference and mm. and um i remember bumping into my 
wonderful psychiatrist who I saw many years later at a at a function. It was actually at a wedding, and uh, um, he smiled at me and uh, and he said, "Can we talk?" And <laughs> no. and, uh, and I I had it was perhaps I don't know it might have been ten years after, and we went outside and uh, we just took a drink and we and we chatted and it was the most wonderful wonderful experience there was uh, nothing that was out of bounds in that discussion there was, there, Did you both no, deliberately no, no, avoid discussion of the previous 10 years no and then i saw him again recently he's now he's well and truly retired uh, we happened to have the same gp and we were sitting in the waiting room <laughs> next to each other and i had I was at my GP because I'd um, had a blocked ear, and I, I um, don't ever put anything small in your ear. No, uh, no. So I had a blocked ear, and uh, um, he, he came and sat next to me, and I was busily looking at my phone or something, and he was talking at me into the blocked ear, and I couldn't hear it. I didn't realize it was him, and then turned and apologized profusely. And uh, so, so I mean, the, the transference does sort of, uh, does, I think, fade away, um, particularly if it's, I mean, I think if it's been a successful therapy. But, so... And by, I, by transference, you mean you're ascribing uh, this power to your therapist uh, that they may not really have, but in your mind it is a projection of uh, they've done good for you, they've well, nurtured you, they've looked after you, they've well, cared well, for it's, you. Well, it's, it's, you, you are projecting onto them <coughs> a whole lot of the, the relationships that you've had in your early life yes. and then relating to them through that. And you, it's, it's very important to work through the transferential, issue, transferential yeah. issues in yeah. the therapy. And so... I wanted to come to that actual final moment when you, you know, the, the final session is over and you're about to say goodbye. And I, I remember very clearly the final moment with my therapist. I mean, therapy is a no-touch technique. So, um, and uh, um, we, we shook hands and he just said to me, well, and that was the final word, just well. <laughs> And, uh, and it was, it was confusing and, uh, and interesting, but it was, it came with a sense of warmth and, uh, and, and connection. Um, and, uh, and that was it. So there was, there was a question and an answer within the well. And with the patient that you terminated therapy with, can I ask what the final word was? The, the final word was, I said, um, she thanked me for, um, giving her uh, a, a life back, having been very unwell, and uh, and I um, uh, I said, look after yourself. That were they were my final words, and uh, and uh, it was very moving. And yeah. it it often it, it, it well it invariably is in that sort of situation. And it was said with that emphasis, look after yours. Yourself, yes. 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 Not look after yourself, look after a break between your and self. She'll be pondering for the next 15 years mm -hmm. on the meaning yeah. of that yeah. farewell. Mm -hmm. but, yeah. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're listening to 3RRR's Radiotherapy. Well, look, I thought I'd... Uh, 
finish um, talking about medical advanced directives. There's been a lot of talk about medical advanced directives really over the last 10 years and certainly um, they are becoming much more common and, you know, a medical advanced directives really like no other, uh, well, not dissimilar to other arrangements and legal agreements that you come uh, to terms with, like a prenup arrangement or even a last will and testament, uh, service contracts, all of those sort of things. It's some sort of way to codify wishes. Um, and I suppose, from, do either of you two have, med- have you written medical advanced directives? I haven't written them, but I've certainly read many of them and been involved in the preparation of a number of them, and yeah. uh, I think they're ethically fraught, but continue. Yeah, so do I, and I'll oh. come to that. I think that they're flawed, um, and I'll explain why that actually is. So um, this, the, the ver- there's a fundamental thing that you've got to analyse when you when you're thinking about advanced directives they were oft, they were sometimes driven by the uh, health economics that is you can waste an enormous amount of money on somebody in the last three months of their life hundreds of thousands of dollars which is futile and that money you know health if you're looking at rational use of resources would be better placed in prevention therapies or other areas of medicine to um, help people uh, not get ill and so there's a whole science or a whole philosophy around you know we're, we're actually spending money preserving life that is going to end i heard a statistic tall man that says you, you consume 50 percent of your lifetime use of health resources in the last two to three weeks of your life okay that that is exactly correct in fact it may be even higher than that and so what you know what then if that's driving the um, medical advance directive, that's misplaced because that's not what a medical advance directive is to do. It's not to rationalise health resources. And it is often to bring to some uh, conclusion or some awareness of somebody's final time alive. So what really an advance directive, I think, does is prepare somebody to die. That is, in their own mind... It prepares them to die, but it also prepares them to have that discussion. It's a way of actually having that discussion with friends and relatives. It provides a format and an outcome for friends and relatives. And like you've said, your wishes are clear, what your wishes would be uh, at the end of your life. And this, often a medical advance directive, and the word is directive, it assumes that you are not competent to be able to direct the last month or two or three or four or six of your life Mm -hmm. and so this document can be taken and read by somebody who's never met you and say well you don't want to be intubated you don't want um, heroic measures and and cardiopulmonary resuscitation you want to be made comfortable and allowed to die so you've just reached that point i know what you want Uh, i can now uh, make sure that's enacted Um, And you can see high value in that. Mm -hmm. That is, somebody has, and this is where I think what we're really doing in advanced directives, and this is why the euthanasia debate sometimes is a furphy, it's it's actually irrelevant, It's, it's having an awareness of preparing to die. That is, I am going to die. Does it matter if I die today or does it matter if I die in two weeks or three months' time? And somebody who's... um, thought that through it doesn't matter that that extra three months of 
you know, low quality life, if you're intubated and, and in hospital for the majority of it, is not worth having um, for the sake of having a, an immediate dignified end. I've always been struck. This, this area leaves me very perplexed. And one of the reasons that it leaves me perplexed is that when someone is preparing an advanced directive, they are attempting to make assumptions about how they're going to be feeling at a particular point in time, assumptions that for many people I don't think can be made. For some, there is, uh, to the very last breath, there is a tenacity to hold on to life. Life in every breath. Yes. For others, uh, the... The, the pain itself becomes unbearable at a certain point in time and uh, there's a desire to to obtain relief. It is It might work for many, but it's hard to exa- imagine that it will work for most. Yeah. That's, that's my concern. Yeah. And I don't know that you can, you know, I watched the Q&A program recently with Andrew Denton, who mm. was given perhaps more airtime than almost everybody else. But, but um, you know, and he's done an enormous amount of research into that, and uh, mm. um, and he's very um, passionate and uh, and and eloquent. I don't think there can be a one size fits all yep. in this debate. I think the point that you made about it being a prediction of how the future self might feel is very well made and that's where I feel advanced directives have the biggest flaw. Like if you were to survey a group of 20-year-olds and ask them for an advanced directive about what they would like done if they were suffering from dementia in 50 years' time and on the verge of going into a nursing home, a high proportion of 20-year-olds would say, kill me, I'd want to be euthanised. If you talk to people in their 50s and ask them the same question, you get a much lower response rate in terms of requesting euthanasia. The group who are the least likely to request euthanasia at the point of suffering dementia and going into a nursing home are those who are suffering dementia and are at the point of going into a nursing home. It's such a galling threat to a 20-year-old. The concept of dementia and nursing home care lacks any sort of cognitive relevance to them that it's yes. too confronting to deal with and their yeah. response is end at all. Yeah. So, so in, what you've hit on is the research that you would want done in this has, is being done or is in the process and that is one way of studying this is to actually to do analyses of people's advanced directives at the moment they get to that critical stage. Now, it's very tricky to do. But you also have to do the research with their carers and their attitudes on their advanced directives because you're right, the the reality of circumstance that you find yourself in changes your perception of what you may want. And that's what's not taken into account. You don't know. You can't know. Now, as being a witness watching actually uh, in practice watching this people who have very firm advanced directives that are very clear at the moment that that decision is about to be enacted that can change and it can change dramatically i'm not sure of the proportion that it changes in and but that does need to be studied but it doesn't take away from the idea that preparing for death and preparing for your um, you know, that final illness is something that you c- can do ahead of time and certainly have those discussions. It is the last great taboo in our society. And, and the, it's very, very hard, I think, to disentangle the role of the medical practitioner in this. Yeah. What I've seen so many times is 
people, when they are ill, whatever the cause of the illness is, it's the anxiety that is associated with not knowing, which can temporarily be relieved by the presence of their physician or surgeon or a doctor of whatever sort. Um, And to, to make an advanced directive assumes a certain level of understanding and being able to hold that anxiety. And I I, 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 I cannot not be troubled by the uncertainty that is involved in this process. By having an advanced directive, one of the things that I think people really get very anxious about is losing control as not having a say in their outcomes. And you certainly see this in the MND, ALS population of patients. You know, they need control. I mean, I don't want to reduce it to glib slogans, but there is a passage in Harry Potter where Dumbledore says death is nothing uh, but the next great adventure for the organised mind. And by, by the organised mind, what he's what Dumbledore is saying to Harry is that you've thought about it. And uh, you've thought about what you want, and 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 you're ready to die. And it doesn't matter whether I die today, or it doesn't matter whether I die in a week. I, you know, things are organised, and I'm okay. But I'm not going to go through three months on the end of a plastic tube having my breathing taken over. And I don't, you know, that I don't want. If there's no possibility of an outcome versus the life in every breath, the Bushido approach, there is life in every breath. It is not the life that you've had, but it is still life because after that breath, there is nothing else. So that's a very nihilistic way to think of it. But everybody's got to think in their own terms. But it is something that is very hard to discuss. And, I mean, it's sort of... um, I've seen two patients go uh, through this in the last week and, and... one from very different perspectives one who um, wanted life in every breath but got to the stage where there was no more breath left uh, and one who uh, had a very organized and planned um, allowing the disease to overtake and and a natural death Um, and it was it was it reminded me of how much work was required to get to that point and how difficult a road that is for for people with suffering chronic disease and something that is going to be uh, something we face more and more in the future. But we do have to have these discussions. I I see them, they're happening more frequently these days and I I think it can only do good uh, Mm. as we go on. But we better stop all that uh, and get back to the scientists who are now at the ramparts, are they? Yes, they are. We're back next week, week McZiff. Yeah. Uh, we've got we're going to talk about cutting edge MRI. We're going to have a very uplifting, uh, dynamic uh, show next week, uh, very similar to the one we just had. So we hope you're listening, and uh, we'll see you then. Whenever I come home after a hard day's work, I love to listen to the sounds of Triple R, one o two point seven. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.